We live in a constantly changing world where the speed of information is changing how we think and act and connect with one another. When people in a society lose faith in their institutions, in God and in each other, the nation collapses. We need help rebuilding trust and tying it all together. Welcome to All That To Say, a podcast exploring the interrelatedness of all things in long-form conversation. Hi, this is Jim Lyon, and you're listening to and maybe watching All That To Say. Welcome to our podcast. We're so glad you're here. If during this conversation you have any questions or want to know more about who we are or what's going down here, check us out online, allthattosay.org. I am so totally stoked to have as my guest today a man who I consider to be a leading voice on the national stage. His name is Walter Kim, and he's the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. Walter, thanks so much for joining us today. We're so glad you're here. Jim, thanks for the invitation. Delighted to be a part of this. And uh, as I understand it, you're at home in Washington, D.C. Yeah, just outside of Washington. I actually live in Charlottesville, Virginia, but our offices are in Washington. Whoa, whoa. Just outside, all the way down to Charlottesville. Yep. Okay, uh, you're you're within driving distance, I suppose, but not exactly just across the Potomac. But hey, I know that you're in Charlottesville, and uh, that's where you've been for the last uh, couple years, and you're able to commute back and forth or help manage the ship at the NAE, which actually does have an office in the district. Is that right? That is correct. That is correct. And, and a lot of my work actually is just traveling nationally particularly um you know as as travel has picked up um so this works well for us so charlottesville i mean I, i've been to charlottesville but it's been a long time so you can fly in and out of there i can i can yeah <laughs> sorry that sounds kind of patronizing doesn't it well, the town where i live doesn't have an airport i have to drive to indianapolis so there we are Hey, the national association of evangelicals what i'm going to use as a shorthand nae uh, is a really, really important piece, I think, of the national landscape. It's had a lot of outsized influence, it seems to me, over its long lifetime. It, in a way, punches above its weight. Uh, it has uh, ideas. It has uh, reach. It has ambition. It also has a listening ear, and it has a voice. How long have you been the president at the NAE? Uh, Jim, I started in 2020, just weeks before the pandemic really hit. So um, my tenure has been an interesting, complicated, um, but deeply, deeply rewarding uh, journey for the last few years. So you've just been in the seat now for a couple of years. Uh, you walked in, as so many ha people have done during the pandemic, became a point of change. Not that you planned it that way, but it just <laughs> fell that way. Before we talk about your tenure, though, tell me about the NAE. What do you know about its history? I mean, where did it come from and what does it do? Yeah. Well, in many ways, its origin um, bears remarkable similarities to our present moment. Um, so the world had gone through a pandemic in the early 1900s. Uh, there was a, a, a global depression. Uh, there eventually was a World War II uh, following a World War I. And these seismic challenges that were really unsettling the world was matched not only on the outside, but also on the inside of the church. And there were deep theological and uh, ecclesiological challenges 
uh, between streams of fundamentalism and theological liberalism and regional expressions of the faith. So in 1942, in a moment that seemed deeply embedded in the struggles uh, of our country at that time, again, within the context that I've just described, um, a group of leaders came together in St. Louis and said, there's got to be a third way. There's got to be a different way, a robust um, orthodoxy that is simultaneously generous and engaged uh, with the issues of culture, not retreating and not lobbing grenades. Uh, there's got to be a different way forward. Was it perfect? Of course not as flawed as fallen human beings are. But it was deeply ambitious and um, aspirational for the kind of following of Jesus that would be a blessing uh, to the nation. So the NAE from that point on um, grew in a variety of ways, uh, 40 different denominations, Pentecostals, Presbyterians, Methodists, you know, Mennonites, Baptist brethren, I mean, you name it, the various traditions within. Um, but despite the differences, deeply um, committed to the fact that what holds us together as followers of Jesus uh, is so significant that we really need to find one another. We are better together. And that also was expressed in an um, aspect of living out our call as good news people, both in word, but also in deed. So the NAE founded uh, World Relief, uh, an international humanitarian organization designed to equip and empower the church to uh, help the most vulnerable in the name of Jesus throughout the world. We have a chaplaincy uh, program, endorsing chaplains in all branches of the military and hospitals and nursing homes and meatpacking plants and uh, with a deep commitment to say that Jesus encompasses every dimension of life. Um, and of course, we also have a public policy wing where we seek to engage with the social application uh, of the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, it's a, it's a huge portfolio. It's uh, comprehensive in a way. It's not just in a narrow lane. But when we say National Association of Evangelicals, uh, there is a meaning to the term evangelical. There has to be some history to the choice of that brand. Because it's clear that not all churches who would say they have a cross on top of the building are a part of the NAE, or may have even feel like they're a part of the NAE uh, stream of thought. Help me understand a little bit about that term evangelical, because today, as then, as you say, we're kind of at a moment where people are examining and thinking and maybe reviewing what they've thought traditionally about Christian community, culture, and churches. Jim, you're absolutely right. I mean, the term evangelical has become so complicated uh, at best, perhaps toxic in, in its worst iterations, uh, because it's often been associated with perhaps a, a politicization of faith, um, maybe a certain view of uh, American life and culture. Um, so I think it's a very important question that you're asking. What, what in fact, do we mean by evangelical? Uh, it's a term that is very longstanding, as um, you well know. It comes from originally the Greek euangelion, which means good news, the, the good news of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of the world. Um, and eventually, through euangelion, became the English version evangelical. But it actually started uh, having its more modern um, flavor with Martin Luther. Before the Protestants were called the Protestants, Martin Luther called his movement the evangelical movement in German. 
because his idea was that there needed to be kind of this fresh movement of connection to Jesus in life transformation. And from that uh, British um, brand of evangelicalism taking the form of the Wesleys in particular, uh, William Wilberforce and others, um, they reinvigorated the term uh, in the late 17 and 1800s. In America, again, in 1940, um, the term evangelical was landed upon because it seemed like a connection to this historic renewal uh, by the Spirit in focusing in on the transformational work of Jesus. And so uh, a British scholar trying to figure out this question, what makes an evangelical an evangelical? Uh, David Bebbington, uh, you know, kind of landed on four aspects of um, theological positions that could define evangelicalism, regardless of de- denominational background. And one would be a, a very high view of the inspiration and authority of Scripture. A second would be the need to have a conversion to Christ, whether it's a dramatic conversion like um, Billy Graham crusade coming down at Just As I Am, or a conversion that uh, arises from a lifelong exposure to faith in Jesus and your family. The, the need for a personal conversion was a second aspect. The third aspect was a, a very clear focus on the cross uh, as uh, the means by which salvation is, in fact, brought to the world. And this last piece um, is uh, of activism, that there's not simply an aspect of evangelicalism of personal piety, but that personal piety should work itself out uh, in the great movements. And I'll use you know Wesley and Wilberforce as an example. In England, it, it led to the abolitionist movement there, and I would say in America as well, um, deeply, deeply engaged with an outworking of the faith. Uh, those, um, I think, still hold true um, very powerfully. Uh, But I would say that there are some other aspects of evangelicalism that are baked into its DNA that maybe bring us to the complexity of the moment, that it's not enough simply to think about our theological positions, but we also have to think about our cultural posture. And there's a certain kind of posture to evangelicals that go beyond um, positions. And I would say that posture is there's always been uh, a struggle in evangelicalism to describe um, what it is that counts for the experience of conversion. Like, how emotional should it be? Does it, in fact, require us to have a just-as-I-am moment coming down from a Billy Graham crusade or a distinct conversion, or can it be slow? And how do we make sense of the diversity of experiences? Um, There are two other aspects that I think are really helpful. Molly Worth, a historian at University of um, North Carolina identified a couple of these aspects. And one is um, the question of how does faith and knowledge relate? How do we relate faith with secular knowledge? And the the last question would be, how do we relate our personal piety with our public engagements? And those questions of what counts for salvation experience— Uh, the relationship between faith and knowledge, and lastly, the relationship between the personal and the public, these are really posture questions. They've led to either isolationism uh, or hostility, and they've been very complicated. Again, I would layer this matrix of evangelicalism as negotiating not only theological positions, 
but negotiating how we answer some of these posture aspects in either culture war, culture engagement, cultural assimilation. Um, and I, that's making for a very complex moment right now. Well, that's always been a, a hard needle to thread, I suppose. But certainly these days when there's so much uh, conflation of the kind of theology you've just described and the public square, which is raging with so many polarized uh, different points of view. But one thing, Walter, I just have to say as you're talking, it's so clear to me, you love history. Mm -hmm. I mean, every answer that you're positing has a context, which I, I wholly am drawn to. It's very magnetic for me because I love history also. You have a history degree from Northwestern, and, and you, you have a PhD in Near Eastern Languages and Civilization from Harvard. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to imagine Walter Kim, who is speaking here about head knowledge. I mean, you, you've, you've got some of that nailed down, but also its expression in lived experience and, and the way in which we express and project who we are. All of that is fascinating to me. Tell me about Walter's story. Where did you come from? <laughs> Where did, did you grow up thinking, you know, I'm an evangelical that was drilled into you in the home that raised you, and, and you pursued all kinds of intellectual uh, expertise in that evangelical frame, or no, you started in an intellectual pursuit and then later found your faith of framing you as uh, new clothing. Just tell me a bit about your story. How did you become yeah. this guy? Yeah. Uh the the segue that you had from the head to maybe the heart um, i think is uh, a good one for my story so i did not grow up an evangelical uh, i am the son of a refugee and immigrant parents um, my father literally uh, escaped um, from communist china crossing a river in a barrel with his family as a kid and getting to south korea where he met my mom they got married moved to america i was born in new york city um, faith was an aspect, but it was really more of a cultural and social aspect uh, of my life journey. But in my life journey, at every critical moment, there have been people of faith that had extended arms of hospitality and embrace. So the Lutheran pastor who helped my parents immigrate from Korea to America. There was the Irish Catholic family in whose basement um, I lived in New York City in the Bronx, uh, and there, many kids taught me how to ride my big wheel and get to the park. Uh, and then there was the evangelical youth pastor who met me in my middle school years and invited me to join a youth group, something that I'd never experienced before. And there heard with clarity uh, the message of Jesus Christ. And so I came to faith. Literally, I heard uh, the gospel presented to me in a parking lot after watching Star Wars. And uh, this youth pastor um, asked me a few questions. You know, did did Obi Wan Kenobi remind you of someone when he died, so that Luke Skywalker and others could escape? You know, <laughs> the Death Star, and um, that, of course, was Jesus, right? <laughs> yes. And and so I I became a Christian in a parking lot after watching Star Wars. Um, so my story of coming to faith was one, really not thinking my way into it but being loved into it uh, by people who expressed hospitality. And as I've grown, there's been kind of this dual aspect of trying to make sense of the heart 
experience of transformation with um, an expansive understanding of the implications of that transformation in all domains of life. Um, and that's been a journey ever since that parking lot. But I'm hearing your testimony and understanding that that experiential, loved-in experience that brought you to a choice about Jesus uh, has not in some way compromised, and, and, I, and I'm speaking here maybe for an audience, not for myself, it has not compromised your capacity to understand the intellectual heft of the world around us and the necessity of engaging the head with the heart. I mean, yeah. you, you have traveled uh, a, a roadway that has not excluded one from the other, and sometimes that does happen in religious life. People go one side of the road to the other. You've, you've been driving down with both. I have to ask, uh, at Harvard, studying Near Eastern languages and civilization, just give me a snapshot of something that you, you learned or grasped or became relevant for you as you move forward in life in that kind of study. Yeah. So in, in that program, I studied um, the ancient Near East, so that it's not always apparent what Near Eastern language and civilizations mean. Um, it, it was the world of antiquity of the Middle East, um, and for a variety of historic reasons, that's it, it ended up being called Near Eastern Studies. When it's ancient and when it's modern, the same area is called Middle Eastern Studies. So I studied ancient uh, Akkadians of Babylon, Assyria, the countries, the empires that dominated uh, during the time of the Old Testament, and mm -hmm. the Old Testament was one of the primary texts that was central to my study. So it was history, archaeology, literature of the ancient Near East, and um, very much the the life of Israel, the revelation of God in the Old Testament, uh, Hebrew Bible, as I studied it, uh, and understanding the world um, in which that arose. Now, you know, I was warned that Harvard might undermine my faith because it was uh, positioned in the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. So the study was not religious uh, in its context. It was very much critical in its thinking. But um, I came in with this wide-eyed understanding that all truth is God's truth, and God is not afraid <laughs> of questions. Right. The psalmists are constantly questioning God. The prophets are constantly railing about, where are you, God? How long is it going to take you to bring justice? And so um, my view going in was, if I have a faith in a God who has rated it all, who is unafraid of questions, um, then I I can learn from anyone. I can pick and pick out, you know, what is the truth in all of this? And if there are things that I think need to be rejected, then God in his grace could guide me to that. But even those things oftentimes raise questions that I wouldn't have thought of asking. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, to understand that the literature of the Bible was deeply embedded in the literature of the ancient world, uh, the stories that were being told, the kind of writing that was being written, the ways that the Code of Hammurabi, which predates Deuteronomy, um, set us a bunch of laws down that bear some similarities, many similarities to the book of Deuteronomy. But those differences were extraordinarily telling of the uniqueness of God. So rather than undermining my faith, the Code of Hammurabi strengthened my faith, mm -hmm. my faith in a God who is incarnational, who comes into the world and interacts with it as it is, taking on the garb of a literal Jew 
physically being a certain height, a certain facial feature, living at a time where a certain language was being spoken. The incarnational God um, was really a big takeaway uh, that God would come at certain times and places, manifest himself, speak in a way that would be very powerful to that culture, but also challenging to that culture, transforming it and calling it to a redemptive purpose. Wow. I, I could take this so many ways because I want to know more, but let me just move on with Walter's story because you 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 pursue your education and so on. Ultimately, you find yourself in a vocation as a pastor. And uh, uh, for me, uh, very notably at Park Street Church in Boston, which is a very historic, um, I would say literally towering uh, edifice uh, in the city over historic ground, but towering also in its influence over time uh, through American history. Tell me about that. Uh, first, how did you discern that, you know, maybe God is calling me to be a shepherd, a pastor? And secondly, about your journey at Park Street, I mean, how did that mantle fall on your shoulder and how did you experience it? Yeah. So, you know, when I uh, went to college, I went with originally a design to go into medicine uh, mm -hmm. and to follow in the footsteps of my father to become a doctor. Um, that became apparent to me as my faith um, started to take more and more hold, and I was seeing the ways in which God was actually using uh, my life in um, leading Bible studies and helping hallmates discover faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, those things were deeply formative in my understanding of perhaps God is actually calling me to go into some kind of vocational ministry, which I did. So I was on staff with a crew at that time, Campus Crusade for Christ, and um, and served at, at Yale for several years, decided I needed to get some theological education, which I did in Regent College in Vancouver, and then wanted to do PhD studies because I thought I would be teaching as a Christian within secular university context. Mm -hmm. I always wanted, as a staff worker with CREW, um, I always wanted professors and loved to feature professors who held on to their faith and were able to integrate their mind, their 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 heart in all of what they were doing. And I thought maybe the Lord would call me to actually do that rather than simply want others to be doing that. It was my time uh, at Harvard when I was attending Park Street Church that I recaptured this sense that perhaps this could all be done in a local church. So at Park Street, what I discovered, again, every church has its flaws, but I, I would say one of the beautiful, very compelling things about my time at Park Street was the sense of um, a holistic gospel. I, it would be very likely that in any given service, you would have a Harvard professor, maybe a physics, I literally am thinking of this right now, Harvard professor of physics, sitting next to a homeless person coming right off the street of the Boston Common. And I thought, a, a gospel that could minister to both, that answers the questions, the most probing questions uh, of a Harvard physicist with the deepest needs, human fundamental needs of someone coming off the street. This is a gospel that is so compelling. It was facing toward the city, engaged with the university. It was becoming increasingly multi-ethnic and multi-generational. This was very compelling to me. Uh, and so the sense of call inc increased until um, it converged with an opportunity to serve as a pastor 
uh, at Park Street Church. And both my wife and I ended up coming on staff um, as as pastors at Park Street. And I think that vision of uh, this integration of, of, of faith in these multiple dimensions uh, engaged in these nuanced ways, um, I, I think is very critical to my sense of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I have to ask because I spent most of my life as a pastor, Walter. Uh, so I, 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 I'm old enough to be your father, probably. I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm looking at you thinking, okay, I did this pastor gig for 42 years before I came to my present post. I want to ask you, as you approached uh, serving a church like Park Street, week by week, Sunday by Sunday, a, a teaching office, uh, in addition to the other dimensions of pastoral ministry, were you the kind of guy who decided, you know, we're going to do a series on family finances? Or were you a verse-by-verse -verse preacher? Or were you the person who was responding to the headlines? Maybe it's all of the above. What would you say? I think um, uh, the question would be answered all of the above. Um, my general approach was to, uh, you know, take an expositional book-by-book working through um, uh, a book of the Bible, but within that, recognizing that there will be topics, whether of a personal or a public nature, that Scripture from from those books could address. And sometimes the, the choices um, of books were determined by, well, what book seems to be addressing the issues of the day uh, and working our way through that? But there were occasions where they would be topical, uh, series in nature. I, I think it was also important to recognize that it's not simply about the preaching, that formation uh, takes place within small groups, within uh, education hours outside of uh, the pulpit. And um, to recognize that uh, the ministry entailed, again, a more comprehensive understanding of how humans are changed. And that includes, yes, hearing the Word of God preached, but it also includes what happens in a small group. Well, and you you unpack this idea that number one in the list of the quadrilateral of evangelicalism is a reverence for the Scripture, that it has a front and center position in evangelical life. But also, uh, would you agree, uh, I'm, I'm here leading the witness, uh, that when when you're approaching the scripture, I mean, you could do that in a head game. I, I don't mean to diminish that, but you can you can isolate the scripture uh, just in a world of ideas and divorce it from the ordinary course of life that you're experiencing otherwise. And and actually, to fully engage the scripture for me, it's why it's supernatural. Is that it has this capacity to have transcendent ideas, but they're my understanding of the scripture is informed by the world I'm living in right now. It's speaking into the present tense. It's not just old news. And uh, my guess is Park Street has a history of doing that over time and with Walter as their pastor probably worked. Am I fair? Well, yeah, I, I, I would hope at some level. I, I think that, um, Jim, you bring up a very interesting point that I think is worth pursuing that speaks to both the strength and the weakness of evangelicalism, certainly in, in, in America. And that is this, this whole posture thing towards Scripture. So we have this theological position, but we also have a posture. And that posture is um, tends to be populist, you know, pietistic in nature, personal in nature. I have my piece here, a good, good evangelical <laughs> preacher here, and pragmatic. Mm -hmm. And those things are wrapped up in the way that American religion tended to unfold. 
you know, it's a populist religion because we're a populist country. And by that, I mean, very specifically, we're a democratic country. We threw off the monarchy. We wanted to empower the people. There's a deep impulse of populism within our country. Pietistic, too, that the personal transformation of Jesus, um, pragmatic. I mean, Americans are so pragmatic. What it will take to get things done. That's why best-selling books are, you know, seven habits or three things or top 10 to-dos, right? right. We, we want to break it down into practical steps. And, and when those things happen, uh, we take a certain approach to Scripture. So Scripture is the inspired authoritative word, but our interpretation is not necessarily inspired and certainly not authoritative. And then it comes to you know the the realization that we are actually shaped by our culture and even how we read scripture, and that should produce some humility. When I was deciding to go into medicine versus ministry, um, I got two very distinct set of advice. When I asked my um, Anglo Caucasian American friends, uh, "What should I do?" Their typical response was, "Christians, well, what do you sense God leading you to do? Um, what do you feel gifted to do?" What do you want to do? When I asked my Asian American friends, their first question was, what do your parents think? <laughs> now, both are very important questions. We are to honor our father and mother. We are to honor the wisdom of the elders. So that kind of community responsibility of faith is biblical. It's also biblical that we ask the question, what has God gifted you to do? Um. And yet, both groups, deeply informed by Scripture, shaped by Scripture, are also shaped by the cultural lenses. Mm -hmm. I think we need to grapple with that within evangelicalism, that we really have been shaped, uh, and certain segments of evangelicalism shaped by a subculture compared to other segments of evangelicalism shaped by a different subculture. And oftentimes, we have baptized our interpretation as the authoritative inspired statement when we ought to have a little bit of humility which is not to say truth doesn't exist and we're all free for all of our ideas but it is to say we actually need others who are different from us to help us ask questions that we would have never thought of asking so that we can get answers that we would have never discovered and enrich our experience, knowledge of God's full comprehensive purpose, which is why I go back to history, because there are different sets of questions at different times that are instructive for us, which is why I really am eager to see the NAE and evangelicalism recognize the different aspects of evangelical faith within the immigrant church, within the African-American church, within the Asian-American church, um, men and women, and our global connections all become critical because um, otherwise we will have a myopic faith, and that myopic faith can get baptized uh, in a way to become a contentious faith as we become defenders of the truth. Again, we ought to defend the truth, make a case for it, but we ought to have a certain amount of self-criticism and self-awareness within that. Uh, an openness to God in the full breadth of what he would have to teach us. Yes, a certain openness. Uh, as you were just sharing that, I, I was recalling my own uh, pastoral journey. I uh, I grew up in Seattle, Walter. I, 
I lived there my whole life till I moved to the middle of the country uh, for this calling. But uh, I'm saying that to say Seattle is a, is a fairly monochrome place. It has very little uh, bandwidth for African-American population and so on. It's just historically been that way. And when I moved here to the middle and I found myself pastoring, I say the middle of the country, I'm in Indiana, that uh, I, I did a series once where I, I read a collection of Martin Luther King's sermons from Dexter Avenue Baptist. Of course, a famous pulpit, the place in Montgomery, Alabama, where uh, so much history unfolded in the civil rights movement with uh, Dr. King at the point. Anyway, it was a fascinating collection. And I decided I would not plagiarize him. I, I'd say up front to my congregation now, I'm going to preach some of these texts after reading Dr. King. But what really struck me about this some years ago was the way in which the texts were very familiar to me. But Dr. King's journey as an African-American in the South was very different from my journey as a white guy in Seattle. And the truth, the, the expanse, or maybe the nuance, or the, the depth uh, in so many ways of the text was just an avalanche on me, because so much is taken for granted when we simply read through the lens of our own journey. And to your point, yes. And the NAE, I know, is, is working that. And I know that your call to the NAE, Walter, is in some way... Uh, consequent, I think, to your understanding of this truth. And the fact is, you're the first uh, a person of a minority community to have a leadership role, to be at the point, as it were, in the NAE. Because it historically was a convocation of uh, white male church leaders. And uh, the world is changing, and the NAE is, it reflects that. I have to go back to Park Street a bit, though. You know, there's a, here's a congregation that over time, over decades and centuries really, uh, became a, a kind of iconic landmark in Boston, a, a voice into the city but also into the country. Uh, this is a place where the gospel of regeneration, choice for Jesus, uh, the born-again experience has never been uh, pushed to the side in the favor of other pursuits. But at the same time, this is a place where the abolitionist movement uh, got some legs in the day, just as you've reflecting evangelicalism with this kind of holistic approach. The NAE is today in the middle of uh, many people's minds, the public square scrum of ideas and issues, controversially. This is the whole idea about evangelicalism. I mean, so many people uh, have different views of what that means. For some, it is a wall up. When you say evangelicals as well, uh, judgments are made about what I might think if I was known as evangelical. On the other hand, uh, it works as a wall turned down. Oh, you're one of us, a kind of us and them. I mean, there's all kinds of things I don't have to tell you about it. You live in this world every day. We are today talking on election day in the United States. That's when this conversation is taking place. Evangelicalism is seen by many people as taking a side or being harnessed or captured by one political view or another. I mean, that is a difficult moment, it seems to me, for all of us who have a deep, deep love for the gospel, who have no shame about the fact that we are unabashedly Jesus followers, but still the awkwardness or the difficulty or the challenges that we face with all of these different uh, commentaries, where it used to be 
again, I'm an old guy, maybe it seemed to be less controversial in an earlier day. Today, it's right at the point. How do you manage that? What do you think? Does evangelicalism need to be reclaimed? Does it need to be rebranded? Uh, or do we just need to hold steady? What are your thoughts? Yeah, this is uh, <laughs> the question that I was asked uh, at the beginning and asked repeatedly, you know, would we, would we drop the term evangelical and be the National Association of you know, something else. And um, there may come a day where the term evangelical becomes um, so problematic that it actually is a detriment to the witness uh, and the call of those who follow Jesus and who would hold to some of these theological positions and would wish to engage uh, in proclaiming the good news in word and deed. And, and then the term evangelical becomes an impediment to that. And then, of course, we would seriously need to consider, you know, what would be good for the sake of the gospel um, itself. And I'm not ready uh, to give up uh, that term for several reasons. Um, one is uh, history, as we've talked about. Why would I wish to disconnect what I understand to be the heritage that has led to this point of evangelicalism? But it's also the breadth, the global breadth of connection. So, uh, right before I started my tenure, uh, I had a chance to attend uh, the World Evangelical Alliance uh, in Jakarta, Indonesia in 2019, where the various national associations, America included, would be represented. 800 delegates from 90 different countries, all claiming the name evangelical. Depending on how you count things, you know, four, five, six million evangelicals around the world. We sang uh, in different syllables, many of which I did not understand, but we sang with the spirit that I understood completely. There was one particular panel, uh, a, a plenary session about evangelicalism in America. I thought, oh, man, this is going to get complicated. <laughs> And on the panel, there were folks from uh, Asia, S South America, Africa, Europe, no no American on it. So this is kind of a global conversation. I expected um, it to be a time of complaint of what's going on in America. And there were some incisive criticisms, for sure. But mostly, it was a plea. Um, let's like get your act together so that you can be partners with us in this global movement. We actually need you as a global partner. You know, minus all the complicated colonial stuff in the past or whatever, but we still need you and you are robustly important. And I thought how American it would be to reject a term evangelical when it's inconvenient for us. Why would I wish to disassociate myself from history and my global brothers and sisters who are actually asking for us to be a part of their movement. Um, so I came back with a, a resolve to say, let's do what we can by the grace of God and the power of his spirit to reframe evangelicalism. And at the NAE, you know, we have this document called For the Health of the Nation that seeks a comprehensive application. It's kind of laid it out um, uh, for us and what we understand in our public civic engagements. And it includes um, eight different areas. Even this is not comprehensive, but it, it 
it explores the comprehensive application. It includes, you know, religious liberties, sanctity of life, but a womb-to-tomb sanctity of life, strengthening marriages, but in creative ways, um, seeking justice and compassion for the vulnerable, preserving human rights, pursuing racial justice, uh, promoting uh, just peace and restraining violence, and care of creation. And this is, to us, the, the representation of a gospel that is holistic, comprehensive in its application. Whatever we mean by evangelicalism at the NAE, we mean a robust engagement with the history that has gotten us here, with the global community that still maintains this Jesus-loving, spirit-filled application of a comprehensive gospel in its various domains, which does mean public policy work, but we are very careful at the NAE not to enter into the endorsement uh, of candidates. We are we, we don't do that. So you, you will not see the NAE issue things, evangelicals for blank uh, candidate. We are very eager to work with any and everyone on these various domains uh, of the comprehensive application of the gospel. Uh, and that means both sides of the aisle. That means uh, people who hold similar beliefs, but also drastically different ones, as we seek to foster uh, a presence in our common life together. Um, and so this type of evangelicalism uh, is the type of evangelicalism that exists in many parts of the world where evangelicals are a minority community. And they have learned to lead from the margins, not from the middle. And that requires a good faith interaction with civic issues, not just personal ones, uh, working with secular authorities, sometimes authorities that are totalitarian and drastically anti-God, but somehow figuring out how to navigate the, those complexities. I think America, American evangelicalism needs to understand that we are rapidly moving from the middle to the margins. We got a lot to learn about what it means to influence and lead from the margins. It's a very different posture. It sounds very much, uh, much more like the New Testament church world than the one we've been accustomed to, uh, having so many uh, uh, levers of control historically in the society. But that tells me also the NAE is committed to this uh, idea of evangelicalism, which is. Uh, engaged. It's not isolated. This is not monastic witness. This is uh, engaged. Uh, and I think the NAE actually speaks up. I mean, when you talk about the health of a nation and the eight uh, dimensions of that, uh, the NAE would speak into the public square on championing some things. Is that right? I mean, I, I think I've seen the climate uh, paper that's just come out. Tell me a little bit about that as an illustration of, of how the NAE is helping people who follow Jesus to see their their witness holistically. Yeah. So we, we do have a document that has recently come out, um, loving the least of these, uh, and you know dealing with changing environment, um, so the challenges that exist uh, with climate change. Um, and uh, it seeks to draw from science as well as the communities of faith, recognizing, again, like the heart of Jesus, we would argue, um, a deep concern for the most vulnerable. Because the most vulnerable are the ones who are often 
first and foremost impacted by the changing climate. So uh, my family had the chance to um, visit Malawi and some of the work of World Relief, which is the humanitarian arm Mm -hmm. of the NAE. Now, Malawi in in Africa is um, one of the most challenging uh, and challenged places uh, in uh, in Africa. And uh, I recall visiting um, an area near a riverside and talking to someone who had uh, worked there for many, many years and said, you know, in the last couple of decades, the rain pattern has changed so much that the hunger season has lengthened. So between the crops of the spring and the crops of the fall. And uh, it has become for them a question of survival within some of these village communities. Climate change is not just an inconvenience. Um, It's not even um, a detriment to economic uh, viability. It is actually a, an existential threat to life. Um, and, and so this sense of our responsibilities uh, as followers of Jesus to engage in this gospel application. And um, visiting one of these villages and seeing some of the work of World Relief there, um, we are seeing this holistic gospel. Uh, there are several um, villages that come from Muslim background villages in a certain area of Malawi, And literally, there is a revival of faith uh, in Jesus Christ that is unfolding, with thousands of people coming to faith in Christ, and in large part because a holistic gospel has been presented to them, a gospel that includes Bible studies and material about Jesus as a Savior, but it also includes sustainable farming practices, saving and loans program, uh, how to raise families, uh, how to deal with disability, So my daughter um, has Down syndrome, and part of the trip was to go as an entire family to represent the redemptive work of Jesus, however abled we may be. And that was a very powerful work that has begun within these areas the last couple of years, disabilities ministry. Um, And this holistic presentation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is so incredibly compelling. Uh, that people really literally are asking, what sort of God would motivate this? Uh, And it is a vibrant witness to the transformational power of Jesus Christ, because it is a holistic gospel. I just came back from Bangladesh myself just two days ago. My first visit there, I've been to the subcontinent many times, but not to Bangladesh, which is geographically largely a delta. And uh, its vulnerabilities to changes in the climate are vast. And here you have one of the most congested countries in the world. And to your point, I was, I was struck and inspired by the vibrant Christian ministry I observed there. Uh, the church family to which I belong has a long hundred-year-old presence in the country, and it's exploding with good, good life, abundant life. But. But I was struck by, in a place where actually I went to villages where the people are illiterate, they cannot read, but they know about climate change. And, and they understand it, and they, and they believe that they are threatened by it. And the, the local church's capacity to actually address that and weave it into a holistic approach to life uh, was astonishing to me because there's sometimes resistance to that in the developed world. 
And yet for the people who are vulnerable, it's absolutely a necessary piece of the puzzle of how do I find the abundant life that Jesus promised, both spiritually but in in the future, but also in the present tense. I, I also just have to remark to you, as you're describing your trip to Malawi, we had a group of churches that got together on the west coast of the United States and uh, church leaders, and we sat around a table and we, we were asked each one to add, to write down, to write out our answers, don't just speak them, write down, what are the five things your churches need? What are the crisis points, the pinch points, the, the challenge points of your local churches? Everyone did that. There were about 12 people in the room. We had to walk around the room, then everyone read their answers. A lot of commonalities, you know, we just, if we had more young people or got a better parking lot, or I mean, the things that church life wrestles with. The next day we reconvened, and this was in Fresno, and we were asked the same five questions, and then we were asked, now, what are the five things that are the pinch points, the challenges, the crisis points in the community where your churches serve? Everybody wrote down their answers. And what was so striking, of course, the, the aha moment was, everyone went around and shared those answers. There was no correspondence between the two lists, even though it's the same people answering the questions. We know what our churches need, we think, and we know what our communities need, but they did not intersect. The outcome of this was a, a statement, a problem statement. Our problem is that we are considered to be non-essential in the places where we serve. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it's hard to bring Jesus to the table when our, our neighbors that we profess to love consider all the stuff we talk about and pursue to be completely non-essential to the world in which they live. Uh, I don't mean to detour the conversation, but this idea of how we in the United States, how evangelicalism in this country can reclaim that holistic approach, which I think it did have at times and seasons, that is flourishing the church abroad. There we are, there's Jesus walking down the street. That is so compelling. I um, you know, when I went to Malawi, I expected to see economic poverty, but I was really compelled and surprised when I saw the Malawian Christians and and those from Muslim backgrounds coming to faith uh, with the spiritual prosperity. Expected economic poverty saw spiritual pro prosperity. As I was flying back to America, I was struck by. I'm going back to a country with economic prosperity, but such deep spiritual poverty. And um, to see a, a resurgence, a revitalization of robust evangelicalism, and again, as we've been talking about, a form of faith that is deeply comprehensive in its application, uh, humble and gracious in its self-awareness, critical at times even of itself. Um, and in engaged across differences, uh, I think would be such a compelling witness as it is all throughout the world. As it was in the first century where the church experienced its, uh, its most magnificent growth, I suppose. You know, evangelicalism is a complicated word and we've been talking about some of the downsides. And before I leave that, and by I say downsides, I mean just the way the public may mistakenly perceive or maybe sometimes legitimately understand in some pockets uh, some of the challenges evangelicals face in living out their journey with Jesus. Uh, but 
two of the things that seem to just kind of broil, or, or they're just bubbling around me, you tell me what you think, is, is that evangelicalism is a, is a brand of, of a, a bastion of whiteness, you know, that people's perception is, their, their prejudices. This is about white people in the United States and their place. Another is that it may be a bastion of patriarchy, that somehow this is a white men's club in the way in which it's been driven. Not obviously there are women, very prominent evangelicals, but those two ideas, this is the downside, or this is the, the assault on our voice. What, what do you say to that? This is a white man's club. Uh, it's about men. It's about white, white folks. Um, I think we need to have an honest appraisal, again, um, unashamedly so, that holds the complexity. A and my life story is representative of that. White male evangelical organizations were instrumental in helping refugees resettle in South Korea and resettle in America. It was a white male country music, son of Appalachia, Baptist youth pastor <laughs> that told me about the love of Jesus and actually demonstrated it when I had actually experienced a lot of racism in that area. He represented something very different to me. That is true. While simultaneously, it is also true that the NAE in 1942 really was constituted by almost exclusively white men. Um, history is always inconvenient in how complicated it is. Mm. Um, and we would like to simplify it as an unmitigated good or evil, uh, when it is in fact a bit of, of both. Um, so I would wish to own that that is definitely a part of evangelical history. Uh, it is also a part of human history, right? That those in power typically have been men, and in America it has been white. But it would have been true, fill in the blank, in any country, anywhere, because it is endemic of not simply evangelicalism as a phenomenon, but it's endemic to fallen humans in the misuse of power. So those things are all true. But I would also say we are, and this is perhaps why it's so exciting. I think we are in the most consequential decade uh, in the life of evangelicalism for a long time in the past and to come, because we're at a generational shift from millennials, uh, from boomers to millennials, demographic shifts. Um, the country looks radically different. And there's an opportunity for a revitalization of evangelicalism if we could recognize our past, deal honestly with it, both the good and the bad, which is there, and be open to the possibilities in the present moment. So I'll give you an example, a couple of examples. Uh, you know, the NAE did a study uh, of evangelical beliefs. Um, over 40% of African Americans, not just African American churchgoers, but African Americans actually hold to the Bebbington Quadrilateral. They have evangelical beliefs, mm -hmm. even though many of them would not call themselves evangelicals for the historic reasons we've described. Mm -hmm. Boston, where I'd served for decades, has for decades been post-Christian. 
uh, in uh, around 2015, there was a study done by, um, I think it was 2015, around that time, by American Bible Society and determined that New England and Boston area was the least Bible reading area of the country at that time. It's the area where church planters often go to have their dreams die. I mean, it is just hard, hard soil. So you would think post-Christian, least Bible reading, that it, well, what hope is there? Do you actually realize um, that from nineteen the mid-1960s to 2015, the number of churches in Boston actually doubled from 300 to 600? They were, by and large, immigrant churches, hmm. which were, by and large, evangelical. The Cambodian evangelical church, the Haitian evangelical church, the Korean-American evangelical church, some of them even having evangelical in their home language written on their sign. I think there's a critical opportunity right now with the changing demographics, not to lament what was lost, and not simply to criticize the past, but to recognize that God is bringing a new thing about, and that we are all going to be beneficiaries of it. That it is an opportunity to have a more expansive, beautiful expression of what it means to be good news people. If we have the eyes to see it, the will to pursue it, the humility before God, to trust that this foment that we're in is both a judgment on things that are wrong, but also an invitation to perhaps, I think, one of the most exciting opportunities for the revitalization of the church in America. I know that the NAE, uh, in a snapshot, is representing that diversity. I mean, when we look at a photograph of the people who are now leading the NAE, there's Walter Kim. And the person uh, who is the chair of the board is not uh, cut from the ordinary cloth, is he? Who is that? That's yeah, Pastor John Jenkins, um, uh, one of the leading African American pastors in our country. Who, you know, as we've talked about the opportunities that exist, um, it is precisely these types of conversations. The rich, yes criticism that needs to be owned, the ways in which racism, oftentimes patriarchy was baked in, uh, in ways that um, are shameful. Uh, even, again, as there were beautiful elements of that evangelical mm -hmm. history. Um, but there's an opportunity right now. And but I think it's- Pastor Jenkins important. is right in the middle of it. And right. bringing his experience and wisdom to the table. And then the vice chair, is Joanne Lyon, I believe. That's right. Represents again. Um, Joanne and her uh you know ecclesial tradition, which you would very much yes, recognize. Which I share with her, absolutely. That's right. Um, I think there has been a way in which um the tradition she represents has by and large been a holistic tradition. So we have a lot to learn from one another. Uh, Joanne is uh, the former general superintendent of the Wesleyan Church and uh, still a player, if I can call it that, uh, on the stage uh, working with the larger body of Christ. But what I, what's striking to me is that the NAE 
is itself as an organization beginning to reflect the demography of the country legitimately. Not that it didn't before, but it just it's openness. Maybe that's the term of the day. It's it's openness to these voices that may have walked on a different road, but all united in this devotion to Jesus. And I suppose if evangelicalism has a future, it isn't that that deep reverence for Jesus, the power of Jesus to actually change uh, our our minds, well, to be transformed in our minds like the mind of Christ, there's all that there. So we've talked about some of these challenges, but come on, Walter, you're not doing this job because you feel like, oh, brother, there's so many places to fix. <laughs> What's the good news? To, beyond the good news of Jesus, what do you see going forward? Do you have some uh, ideas or hopes uh, for what not just NAE, but what the evangelical presence in the United States might be going forward. You've yeah. you've talked about it some, but are there particularities where you want to celebrate? Yeah, I think, um, again, even the critical things that are happening, and by critical I mean things that um, deserve criticism, the politicization of the faith, um, the ways in which we're dealing with our history uh, of uh, evangelicalism, predominantly white evangelical history, which again is a complicated thing. Um, these uh, are opportunities to say, what can we learn from this? What fresh things can we be doing? I think um, there are a couple of areas that are of deep concern for the NAE, and that is, um, what does it look like for us to provide leadership with the areas of racial justice and reconciliation? The NAE actually... Um, in the 1950s had issued a resolution on human rights, which was primarily focused on uh, a call to evangelicals to engage in the racial justice issues of the day in the 1950s. When the 1960s rolled around, uh, by and large, evangelicals didn't show up to the civil rights movement, or maybe even were impediments. And this is not to say others didn't show up. I mean, some evangelicals very much did show up. But by and large, um, I, I would say we did not live up to the resolution of the 50s uh, in the lifestyle of the 60s and engagement of the 60s. I think we have an opportunity here to engage in a way to provide um, spiritual, moral uh, leadership uh, in an area that I think uh, is incredibly important for the viability of our witness, how to do this as gospel people, not merely committed to justice in an abstract sense, or even in a historic sense, but in a biblical sense of what it means to be the diverse people of God, taking up concerns for those who have been wronged. Um, the second area is this area of the public. What does it look like? Um, to engage with an evangelicalism that understands the public engagement and expressions of its faith. So we're really good with the personal, not as good with the public. The average evangelical, we in our churches, we know to, what to do if a marriage is on the rocks. We have scores of books that we can give. We have retreats that we can send people to. We have mentoring programs connecting older and younger couples with the precise issues that they have faced. And our pastors are trained how to do counseling and all of that. We don't have the equivalent for our civic engagement. What do we do when our elder boards are riven with division over critical race theory or how to vote or what to do with masks or any number of issues that 
have divided leadership, churches. I would love the NAE to be a, a resource, an advocate, a model for the public engagements of our faith, that we would be able to help in the same way that personal marriages are being helped, uh, the public discipleship of the church, the public witness of the church. Um, and I think this is not a work that you can put on a strategic plan and say, yeah, you know, we'll get it done in the next three months or even three years. This is a a posture. This is an engagement. This is a direction that needs to be sustained um, because it it cuts against the grain of part of the DNA of evangelicalism, which again, pietistic, popular, pragmatic, um, things that make it so, so entrepreneurial, um, so capable of reinvention. Um, but dealing with history, institutions, you know, systems, dealing with uh, a general approach to society and culture, um, that's harder for evangelicalism. You know, in American history, the stew out of which you described the NA being born in 1942 was also in this context of this, as we say, debate or this dividing of the church in this country over what's sometimes called fundamentalism and modernity. I think that those are two uh, strong words, and there's a lot of uh, history in the middle of that. But in that, in the popular imagination, even though if it's subliminal, uh, in American Christianity, what happened then was there was a a separation in the pursuit of good outcomes in this present day world from an emphasis of the spiritual transformation required uh, in a being born again into the kingdom sense, and this became the big divide. So uh, many people today in evangelicalism carry this idea that the, the personal, as you've described, the transformational work of Jesus, my personal piety, is the business of the gospel. And the rest of it is a detour, it's a sideshow, or a distraction actually that can undermine what's actually central to the gospel. That that seems to me to be a, a, a widely held view in, in many swaths of the church, differentiated from people who say, well, you know, the, the whole Jesus thing is really important and Jesus was about making the world better today, but very little uh, exploration of what the personal piety is. I mean, I, there's no mystery to this. I know you understand the divide, but what would you say to the person right now who's maybe in an evangelical church who's been steeped in the idea that if I can get people to the, the just-as-I-am moment and disciple them in studying the Word and investing in their local church, that that is the supreme ambition? And they're fearful of, of wading into these other ideas that you've just described. What would you say to them? Yeah, I would say, well, let's let's look at the first evangelical, Jesus, the first good news person uh, who is, in fact, the good news, not just the proclaimer of the good news. How did he introduce himself to the world? Um, certainly, uh, from the Gospel of Mark, we hear that he went around the countryside proclaiming, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand, which, as Americans, we would typically read in a personal way. I personally need to repent and believe. Um, and that is true. That is absolutely, we need to do that. 
But in Luke chapter four, um, after he's, you know, has a little bit of a tour in the countryside and he's starting to get recognized, he goes to the synagogue in his hometown, Nazareth. And uh, he has a chance now to introduce himself in kind of an, an inaugural speech, so to speak. This is like the first recorded sermon of his uh, in the Gospel of Luke. What does he choose to do? He, you know, he opens up to the scroll of Isaiah and finds the place that is written. For the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news. Oh, great. Repent, believe, come to faith in me. But he goes on and says, what does it say? Anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sight to the blind, freedom for the oppressed, release for the prisoner, the year of the Lord's favor. Um, for Jesus to have introduced himself in this way, not only the first proclaimer of the good news, but the person who is the good news, the one anointed as good news, he himself applied it in a comprehensive way. There was in his mind no difference between the personal implications and the public applications of the gospel. They were all a part of this glorious message uh, that he would give to the world, that he came uh, in this fully orbed way to present a fully orbed good news for the fully orbed human dilemma, which is personal, but it is also social. We have personal problems, and we are definitely recognizing in our country, we have problems living together. And the gospel needs to address both, not only our personal problems, but the problems we face and have always faced as humans in living well together. Well, and that answers the other question I might pose, which is, what would you say to the person who says, well, that whole personal piety thing is not so critically important as my pursuit of doing social good. What do you say to that person? Yeah, and and, and again, the pendulum swings that we have had, um, it's not just in America. I mean, this is just the way the humans do life. We realize we've made a mistake or overemphasized one thing. What do we do? We overemphasize the other thing in order to balance things out. And uh, I, I would like to diminish the oscillation between the extremes and say, yeah, in any given moment, and this is actually going to be different in different parts of the country, different denominational traditions, different churches, different families. Um, your oscillation will exist um, because there has been a flavor of evangelicalism that might have been stronger in one side or the other. Uh, and this is where we need uh, each other to provide some uh, ballast to us, you know, some, some ability to come to the, what I would say this, again, full-orbed application of a full-orbed gospel. Um, so both need to be absolutely there. The transformation of a personal relationship of Jesus that is absolutely critical to becoming a new creation in Christ as an individual. Um, but that individual lives within institutions, within a society, within a community, and the gospel has to have an impact in that as well. When it's proclaimed, the good news of Jesus Christ, it reconciles all things, whether things in heaven and on earth. So the impact of the gospel is not simply on the individual, not simply on human society. Somehow, in some mysterious way that we're not going to understand until the new heavens and the new earth, the proclamation of the gospel also has an impact on the powers that are unseen. 
the powers and the principalities of the heavens. That is a fully orbed gospel. That's a lifetime you can put your teeth into right there. On a little different tack, Walter, uh, if you don't think it too personal, tell me about your family. You mentioned you have a daughter who has Downs. How old is she? She is uh, 18 now. 18. And, and can you um, tell us something about what she has taught you already about life? Every child teaches their parents something. What has she taught you? Yeah, I think, um, you know, my trip to Malawi this past summer, uh, I realized at the end of the trip uh, that God had answered a prayer that I had prayed 18 years ago. After my daughter was born, she was in the NICU because she had all sorts of physical challenges in addition to um, some of the cognitive developmental issues that come along with Down syndrome. And I remember sitting by her uh, incubator and tubes in her body and praying, you know, God, let her breathe, let her live. And then I remember um, wondering, what do I pray after that? What Beyond the living, the moving, the breathing, what am I actually hoping for in her life? We gave her the first name of Naomi. Uh, her older brother is Nathan, and we followed the N. Um, but we chose the middle name of Joy. Uh, you know, from Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And not only that she would experience joy, but that she would become a source of joy for others. This past summer, to see her in some of the villages with kids surrounding her, fist bumping them. Uh, I would give my little talk about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus, but she was actually in many of the villages invited also to speak. And she would talk about how kids need to study hard and that God was with them. And she would conclude with Zukomo, uh, the, the word thank you in Chichewe. And I realized God had answered my prayer. Mm. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to believe that God could transform every life? What does it mean that we need one another? What does it mean to have the humility to recognize the appearance of God in the form of people that we might not think normally as the conduits of grace? Um, this, to me, was an extraordinary lesson. My uh, son, Nathan, uh, has equally, in his own way, been extraordinary ordinarily thoughtful in the questions that he asks about faith. And he keeps me on my toes in a very different way than Naomi. And together, I have seen um, between the two kids, and of course, my incredible wife, that the gospel really is for every type of person. And that God, in his image and every person, has a lesson for all of us in whatever form that person takes. Hmm. And that, that has been a very profound lesson for me. All that to say is what we call this podcast, Walter, and uh, here in your heart and your, uh, your very thoughtful approach to so many critical things that all of us know exist, but sometimes we want to avoid. I so appreciate. Thank you for sharing. And all that to say, you're a Jesus guy. That's my, my shorthand. <laughs> you're a person who has given himself to following Jesus. As a last word today, uh, for anyone listening, let's say someone's listening today who's not so sure that Jesus is really a thing, what would you say to them about Jesus? 
you know, that tug at your heart at night, whether you're wondering what's it all about or why do I feel the things that I feel? The questions that are raised of how are we going to navigate the incredible, incredible contention, not just complexity, but contention that is in our world in this moment. Uh, again, whether it's the personal or the public, uh, I would say look to Jesus. Take some time. The followers of Jesus may not have always honored him. And that is the burden that we bear, recognizing that we don't always honor Jesus. Um, but a sincere plea to take up the scriptures, to explore for yourself who is this Jesus, and to recognize um, that though followers of Jesus are complicated and at times, um, sadly so, contentious, uh, that there is a breadth of humanity that exists within the church that still bears witness to a Jesus who is true, good, beautiful, just. Um, and I would wish for people to give Jesus that opportunity uh, to make his own impression upon their spirit and their mind. Walter Kim, thank you so much for your time today on All That to Say. We are so thankful uh, that you joined us. Thank you for what you do at the NAE. And uh, from that platform, other places as well, still in the pastoral ministry game, still speaking and teaching and loving and learning. We are just so proud to call you a friend and a brother. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jim. What a delight to be a part of this. And I am so deeply encouraged by the questions uh, that you are asking, the boldness, courage, curiosity that you're demonstrating. Oh, that's very kind. Allthattosay.org, check us out online. Walter Kim, be encouraged. May the Lord's favor be yours this week and always coming up. Take care. Goodbye. Bye-bye. For more information, visit allthattosay.org. Thank you for joining the conversation. Don't forget to like and subscribe.